Well, good evening, everybody. It is Genesis chapter 12, where I'm going to begin in just a moment. And right now would be an opportune time for you to be grabbing a Bible or be scooting up next to somebody who's got a Bible and be looking in Genesis the 12th chapter. Get ready to read a few verses from Genesis chapter 12. In fact, we'll only be looking at four different passages tonight, so we won't be running all over everywhere, but there's four specific passages as we work together in the Word of God for these next few minutes. As you're turning to Genesis chapter 12, let me just say how delighted I am to see you all this evening. It is great to see everybody tonight. We do have some guests uh, in attendance, and we just are very appreciative of uh, the fact that you are here. hope that you are finding everything that we do tonight to be done in spirit and in truth as we worship our great God and Father. I always love our Sunday evening assemblies for just a lot of different reasons, and I think I've even been on record before as saying I actually prefer to preach on Sunday evening more so than on Sunday morning. Maybe part of that's just because my energy level is just up a little bit more, and there's lots of different reasons for that. However, having said how much I love Sunday evening services, next Sunday night I am going to relinquish this pulpit to a young brother in the Lord who has uh, his home for the holiday break and to be here for the next couple of weeks. And he's made it known. He wants to be put to work in teaching and preaching the Word of God. And so, next Sunday night, our brother Cain Atkinson will be preaching. The men have agreed to allow Cain to speak and let me just sit and listen for a change. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to that. I hope that you are as well. Just really uh, proud of him. And I'm just, I want to just take this as an opportunity to say I'm just proud and appreciative of all of those who preach and teach and serve in whatever way that you do as part of this congregation. Maybe that's a good thing to say toward the end of the year. Just thank thank you everyone who's a member of this congregation and the work that you do in the Lord's kingdom. In the meantime, that's looking forward to next Sunday night. How about we look forward to what we're doing right now. In Genesis chapter 12, read with me if you will in the first five verses of Genesis chapter 12, reading here about Abram, no better as Abraham, and Sarai, that we know better as just Sarah, Genesis 12 verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. and Him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went. And the Lord, as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan, etc., etc. The text goes on to say, you know, sometimes whenever we're reading passages in the Bible, sometimes I'm afraid we kind of miss the very human element, the human drama that is actually unfolding in these black and white words right there on the printed page. Like, for example, right here in Genesis chapter 12, with Abram going to the land of promise. We read those first couple of verses there and we say, okay, way to go, Abraham. Good for you. You followed God's directions. All right, let's just keep on reading. And as a result of that, we maybe miss the significance of just a passing statement. Like the one there at the beginning of verse 5 where it says that Abram also took his wife. Which means then, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but this means at some point between verse 3 and verse 4, Abram had to go to his wife and he had to say, Honey, we're moving. You need to pack your bags. We're out of here. To which I'm going to assume Sarai then replied, Well, where are we moving to? 
To which Abram then answered, I don't know. I'm not sure where I'm going. The Lord spoke to me and just said, go. And He's going to lead us there. At which point, I am pretty sure Sarai probably said, can we go back to that part there where you were hearing strange voices outside? Can we just talk about that a little bit more? Let's start to think about that. Just think about that, just in real life terms. Think about how that could have been a really combustible situation. Gentlemen, can you imagine coming home one day and just out of the blue telling your wife, Honey, pack your bags, we're moving. Well, where are we moving to? I don't know, we're just going somewhere. The Lord's going to lead us there. That is a recipe for a huge disaster, isn't it? But I believe we can infer from Genesis chapter 12 and verse 5, and if you know the rest of the Abram and Sarah story, I believe we can infer that somewhere along the way, even if there was a little bit of conflict there, Abraham and Sarah, they got that worked out. What could have been a huge problem in their marriage, it ended up being something that Abraham and Sarah, they were able to surmount and they were able to move forward as a couple and move forward in faith. Which begs the question, what about you? Those of you that are married, what about in your marriage? What do you do whenever conflicts and problems arise? I want you to please notice that I did not ask, what do you do if problems arise? No, it's not a question of if. It is a matter of when. What do you do when problems arise in your marriage? Will those problems break and destroy your marriage? Or, in some ways just as bad, do they bring your marriage just down? Grinding the marriage relationship to a halt. To where what we essentially have are two people just kind of unhappily coexisting, cohabiting in the same roof, under the same, under the same roof. Do marriage problems, are they the kinds of things that result in lots of fussing and arguing and screaming that just kind of goes on round the clock in your house? Or do those problems maybe cause that ice-cold silence and tension that you can just cut it with a knife? What do you do to keep marriage problems from damaging the joy and the delight that God intended for you and for all married people to have in marriage? This is not an inconsequential question that I'm asking here. Because there is so much in our world today that is really almost designed to harm marriage. Think about all the things that are going on in our lives. We have the demands of changing jobs and workplaces. We have anxiety about our finances. We have all kinds of uncertainty about the economy. There's all kinds of stresses with raising children. On top of all of that, think about the fact about how our society is just so unfriendly to marriage, at least marriage as God would have it. There's so much today about this idea of I need to be personally fulfilled. It's all about making me happy. On top of that, the media just seems to glorify and revel in promiscuity and adultery and sexual immorality. Our government wants to redefine what the very definition of marriage is. All of those things come together to war against good and godly and strong marriages. And so what do we do? Whenever those various forces, whether they are forces from without or whether they are forces even from within, what do we do when those problems threaten to disrupt and destroy that sacred relationship that God designed all the way back in the Garden of Eden? 
This evening, I do want to talk for just a few minutes about solving marriage problems. And I do that this evening not wanting anybody to think that I'm just some great problem solver. I am not. I need my own problem solved. Which is why I am very capable and very willing to defer to the Word of God. To defer to the Lord and to His book, which offers us the ultimate solutions for all of life's problems. Yes, even including marriage problems. And I want us to think about those kinds of problems, at least in a couple of different directions tonight. First of all, let's think about what to do whenever we're in the midst of a fuss. When we are in an isolated argument with our spouse... And even some of the principles I'll talk about tonight, they will expand and you can put these to use in other relationships in your life. But what are we going to do when we're in the midst of an argument with our spouse where tempers are flaring and angry words are starting to be spoken? What can we do about that? But then secondly, I want us to think about this idea of marriage problems in kind of a bigger view, more of a, more of a long-term direction. Let's think about what to do whenever marriage is just in a constant state of just unpleasantness. There's just ongoing friction and tension. There's just this ongoing problem. Let's think short term. And let's also think long term about three big principles. Three really huge principles that will help us not only to survive the storms of marital conflict, but secondly, they will help us to come out on the other side so that we can thrive as husbands and wives Seeking to serve the Lord. And I want to start that tonight in maybe the most famous marriage passage in all the Bible. It's in Matthew chapter 19. Would you find Matthew 19? That's where we're going to get this first big principle from the Word of God. Because it is in Matthew chapter 19 that Jesus is going to preach a sermon on marriage. And in that sermon what He's going to do is He's going to tell us that we need to start right. And the way that we start right is by saying no to divorce. I'm reading in Matthew chapter 19. Look first of all in verse 6. In Matthew 19 and in verse 6, Jesus says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What we want to do is we want to start right here. And we want to get this right here as our bedrock. We want to make this our foundation because we're going to build everything else on this key principle. Too often what happens is, is we get into a quarrel or we get into a spat. Maybe there's some hurt feelings that results from that. And then that begins to escalate a little bit and then more words are said. And the next thing you know what happens is, is one partner in that marriage is asking, I wonder how much a lawyer costs. And I wonder how we're going to be able to divide up all of these marital assets. And I wonder who's going to get the kids on what weekend. When what we really need to do is we need to pump the brakes. And we need to be asking the question, what does God want me to do? What does God want me to do in my marriage? When there's problems, when there's difficulties, even when there's not problems and there's not difficulties, what does God want me to do? Well, Jesus in this passage is absolutely clear about that. In verse 6, Jesus says, What God has joined together, let not man separate. I must tell you that it is mind-boggling to me that brethren continue to debate and fuss and ask so many questions about the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage when the truth of the matter is, there really shouldn't be many questions about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. 
Because this text here in Matthew 19, it's really not that hard to understand. It is remarkably clear. The teaching here in Matthew 19 is what? The teaching here is don't get a divorce. In fact, everybody really gets all excited. Everybody wants to jump right down to verse number 9. Everybody wants to talk about what about the exception? What about the clause, the contingency legislation that the Lord gives there in verse 9? But you need to understand, that's not where Jesus starts the sermon. Jesus doesn't start the sermon in verse 9. Jesus actually starts the sermon back up in verse 4. Would you find verse 4? In verse 4, Jesus answered the questions that He was receiving about divorce. He said, have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And He said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother... And hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a quotation from the book of Genesis. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Let me just stop right there. If you had met somebody, if you had ran into somebody, after hearing Jesus deliver that sermon, like you were there in person, you heard Jesus preach and say all of this stuff, and you ran into somebody and they said, Hey, did you hear Jesus preach today? And you say, Yeah, I did. They say, Well, what did He preach about? And you say, Well, He preached on marriage. Oh, wow. What did Jesus preach on marriage? How would you summarize that sermon? How would you summarize those verses we just read? The summary of that sermon is pretty simple, folks. Jesus says, don't get a divorce. Stay married. That's what Jesus said here. That's what this text is teaching emphatically. And Jesus provides within this text powerful reasons for that. Focus again on verse 6. Jesus says that they are no longer two, but one Flesh. Notice, you can't divide one. That just doesn't work. There are some things in this life that are just indivisible. If you had, for example, if you had the Mona Lisa, I mean the actual painting of the Mona Lisa, and I said, hey, how about you tear that thing in half and let's, let's share it. Well, that's not going to be any good. That's not going to benefit either of us, is it? No. Why? Because the Mona Lisa, it's indivisible. In the very same way, really in a much more important way, Jesus says that marriage must not be divided. We're talking about one here. Furthermore, look in verse 6. Jesus says we are not to divorce because God has joined us together. Let me ask you, if God joins something, whether that's two people or whether that's two of anything else, who in the world has the right to come along and say, well, I'm going to separate that. I'm going to fix that. Lord, you messed up there. I'm going to get in here and I'm going to make this thing the way it needs to be. That's absolutely crazy for anybody to have that kind of audacity. And has it occurred to any of us that in all the discussion in our world today about gay marriage, we are usually very, very quick to jump on verse 4 and on verse 5, and we point out from those verses that it says, God says marriage is between a man and a woman. God's not going to join two men together in holy matrimony. God's not going to join two women together in holy matrimony. We emphasize, verse 4, verse 5, marriage is between a man and a woman. And I understand that, and we ought to emphasize that. But why is it we are not making nearly the same amount of fuss over verse 6, where Jesus says, let not man separate. What God has joined, 
It must stay together. Now you tell me. You read those verses. You tell me, what is God's will for your marriage? God's will for your marriage is to stay married. Somebody says, all right, well, Joshua, what about all that stuff there in verse 9? I know about verse 9. I've read verse 9. I've studied verse 9. I know about the exception clause where Jesus says, except for sexual immorality. I understand about all of that. But again, even, even despite that, Jesus is crystal clear. There is one and only one reason for divorce. If sexual immorality, if it defiles and destroys the marriage, if it wrecks the very basis for marriage, trust and integrity, then and only then can the innocent party put away their spouse and then remarry. Jesus' teaching, I think, is well summarized by the idea of one man and one woman for one life with one and only one exception. Now, having said all of that, somebody's maybe thinking right now, well, Josh, what's any of this got to do with marital conflict? I thought we were talking about marriage problems tonight, not a big dissertation on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. I want you to know now, this has everything to do with marriage problems. Because what this does is this puts a solid foundation under our marriage. It establishes the right mindset that's going to undergird everything else that we do as husband and wife. Jesus wants us to conceive of the marriage relationship as being something permanent, concrete. That it is not something that can just be kind of dissolved on a whim. You know, you burnt the toast, I'm done with you. I don't like the way you smell lately, the aftershave that you're wearing. Or I'm in a bad mood today. I'm going down to the courthouse. Or I found somebody who makes me a whole lot happier than you do. No, 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 and no. Jesus says marriage is permanent. And if you're thinking, by the way, here, wow, that's tough stuff. That's really tough teaching. Well, congratulations. That now puts you with the disciples. Look at verse 10. The disciples, after hearing all this, they said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. These guys understood that, you know what, that is pretty tough. You know what Jesus is doing here? What Jesus is doing here is He is erecting some boundaries that help provide a hedge around marriage to help us see that the relationship that God created, that it is unique and that it is special and that it must, it must be protected. Young people, you might be thinking, I'm not getting anything out of this lesson. Young people, listen to me right here. Do you understand and do you see what Jesus is telling you? If you want to avoid marriage problems down the road, then what you need to be doing right now, you need to be finding someone who's going to start right with you. You need to find somebody who's going to share the same ideas that you do. A genuine commitment to marriage and to be married for life. By the way, does this, principle, does this principle work in a fuss? If me and my spouse, if we're fussing, is this principle going to help us? This principle is absolutely going to help us. Because when we get our feelings hurt, or whenever we're unhappy, or whenever something doesn't go right, then what this means is, is this means that there are certain things that must never, ever be spoken. To say the words, you know what, I'm just going to leave. Or to say things like, you know what, I'm going to call a lawyer. Or you know what, if this goes on like this, I'm going to file for divorce. 
Folks, those words must not be spoken. I don't care if you're even joking. Don't say those words. Because as Christians, we are committed to God's way. We are committed to God's viewpoint about marriage. And what Jesus tells us here is Jesus telling us we don't have other options. This is it. That I'm here. You're here. We're married. We're joined together. Let not man separate. Divorce is not an option. I don't care. I don't care what a knucklehead your husband is. I don't care how mean she's been to you. It doesn't matter. This is not an option. This is not even on the table at all. So when we start with the right foundation, then that's then going to change how we handle every problem that comes our way, whether in the long term, or in the long term, or whether that's just in a momentary spat and fuss. We're going to work it out. We're going to make it work. Why? Because we realize there's not any other choices here. We have to work this out. Which brings me then to this second big idea. Would you find Luke the 18th chapter? In Luke chapter 18, in Luke chapter 18, I can actually show you the number one predictor for divorce. How do you know if maybe a couple is heading for, heading for the courthouse for a divorce? What's, what's some of the warning signs that would, you know, be sounding up, blah, 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 blah. Here's how you know this is going to be going on. Well, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus is about to tell the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And before he actually tells the parable, he actually gives the reason, or Luke gives the reason, as to why this parable is going to be spoken. Look in verse number 9. In Luke 18 and verse 9, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Contempt. If we are going to solve marriage problems, then not only do we need to start right, we're going to need to think right. And that means getting rid of contemptuous thoughts and contemptuous feelings. A leading marriage researcher actually spent four decades studying just a host of different married couples to try and look and try to see what it is that causes rifts in marriage. And as he studied those folks, and as he studied some of those that ended up ending in divorce, he found a very clear pattern threaded through all of those that ended in divorce. The number one predictor of divorce is contempt. I'm just disgusted with you. I think negatively about you. Whenever you're talking, I'm rolling my eyes, maybe literally or figuratively in my mind, because you're just so clueless. You're just so dumb. Utter disdain. Now, I realize that every couple is going to experience some of those momentary annoyances and aggravations. I'm pretty sure I push the limits of that with my wife on a daily basis. But of course, whenever you are sharing your life with another human being, when you are living under the same roof day in and day out, hey, that stuff's bound to happen. But you need to understand, minor aggravations and annoyances, that's not what we're talking about here when we talk about contempt. When we talk about contempt, we are talking about the idea of just being absolutely disgusted with our spouse. We are contemptuous of who they are and what they are. And the reason that contempt is so deadly, in the words of this researcher, 
is because relationships die by ice, not by fire. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know what, that's a pretty apt description. That's a pretty apt metaphor for contempt. Because contempt does that. It's just like ice. It it cuts us off from one another. There's no point in talking about this. There's no point in trying to talk this through with this person. He's too stupid to even understand. You know, why would I want to talk about this? She's never going to change. Why even bother with that? You know, why should we bother going and talking to maybe the elders of the church or going and talking to a marriage counselor somewhere? It wouldn't do any good. Contempt. Contempt leads to to giving up, to growing more distant, to not making any effort to work those problems out. In fact, that's precisely what's going on here in Luke chapter 18 with this Pharisee. This is not a story about marriage, I understand that. But it is a story about what contempt does to a relationship between two people. Look at this Pharisee. Look in verse 10. Look at how Jesus describes this guy. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Verse 13, But the tax collector standing far off, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me a sinner. This parable is about a guy who thinks that he is better than everybody else. In fact, one translation actually renders the word contempt in verse 9 as looked down on everyone else. That's exactly it. Looking down on someone else. Contempt comes not because this other person made a mistake or because they accidentally did the wrong thing. No, contempt comes because I am choosing to treat you like you don't matter. I am choosing to treat you like you are beneath me. I'm pushing you down. What you did, your error, your mistake, it was so foolish. It was so ridiculous. What you said over there when we were around all those people, I can't believe that you would say that. I can't believe that you would act like that. Contempt says, you know what? I'm not like that. You do that, but I don't do that. What you did, it just proves how much smarter, how much better, how much more holy, how much more righteous than I am than you. You are You are beneath me. And that is exactly the attitude of this Pharisee in Luke chapter 18, isn't it? That contemptuous attitude, notice there in the text, it brings about, for example, all kinds of criticism against others and even criticizing this guy right here who is in the temple doing what? He's trying to pray to God. And he's criticizing that man right there. Here's a man who becomes defensive. It's all about himself and he always has to kind of prove himself to God. God, look at what all that I did. Look at how great I am. Look at all of my many wonderful and awesome works. Here's a guy who's not going to look in the mirror. He's not going to see that the changes that need to be made in his own life. No, 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 no. I'm not going to do that because I'm so much better than everyone else. I'm above everyone else. Can I ask you now? What would happen? What would happen if we read that parable and we replaced the Pharisee and the tax collector with a husband and a wife, or a wife and a husband, whichever one of those roles. Imagine how that would read, verse 11. So then the husband, he stood up and he prayed thus, God, 
I thank You that I'm not like my wife. I do my daily Bible reading. I pray three times a day. I pick up my dirty socks around the house. I never get angry with the kids. Maybe we don't pray that way out loud. Maybe we don't say those words out loud. But I'm going to tell you, if we feel that way inside, then we're going to have some serious and significant problems. Contempt is the number one predictor for divorce, and I hope you can see why. When we are contemptuous toward our mate, what happens is is we're going to be harder on them for their mistakes, more so than we would anybody else. It means as well we're not going to be interested in their thoughts and their ideas and their suggestions and their contributions because after all, they're so dumb. Why should I listen to them? And of course, we are utterly incapable of sympathizing, showing compassion toward them because after all, I'm better than them. Why would I want to lower myself to feel the way that they do? The answer to all of that kind of stinking thinking is to think right. That I need to see myself really in the same way that this tax collector saw himself. I need to be ready to say, Oh God, be merciful. Be merciful to me, a sinner. I do dumb things. It's not just my partner who does dumb things in marriage. I do dumb things in marriage too. I make mistakes. I say wrong things. I do completely... just, just not, There's no, not even any explanation for the things that I do sometimes. And the idea of holding my spouse to some kind of a standard up here that I refuse to be held to, not only is that unfair, not only is that hypocritical, it is also ridiculous. And I am glad this evening that we started with that first point. With the idea that we are not going to get a divorce. That is the beginning point. But you know what? We don't just want to be staying together just because we don't want to break Jesus' law in Matthew 19. That's not the only reason we want to stay together. We don't just want to stay together because, well, for the sake of the kids. That's why we're doing that. And we don't want to you know, get involved in deeper sin by getting a divorce. So, so we'll just kind of stick together. Let me say right here, it's better than getting a divorce. I get that. That's probably what I'd advocate to somebody. But I'm going to tell you, that's not enough. It's not enough just to stick together for the sake of sticking together. We must do better than that. God demands that His people do better than that. We want to thrive together and live together and dwell and be together as husband and wife, being everything that God intends for us to be as His children. Contempt is our enemy. We need to root that out. In a fuss, when we're eye-rolling, and we're showing disdain, and we're spouting those hateful words, That's just going to end up escalate whatever problem is going on at the surface. It's just going to make things so much worse. When there's contempt in a more long-term view, where we have adopted really kind of just a very permanent attitude of, I'm just so much better and all this time has just proven how much better I am than you, then that threatens to sink everything we are trying to build together as a married couple. What I need to do, what you need to do, is we need to think better about our partner. And I want to say that as we think better about our partner, that means as well thinking realistically about ourselves. We need to be ready to say, God, be merciful to me because I'm a sinner. That will go a long way towards solving marriage problems. Let me give you principle number three. Big idea number three from Scripture. It's in the Old Testament. Would you find 1 Samuel chapter 2? 1 Samuel chapter 2, we read here about a fellow by the name of Eli. 
Eli would be an interesting case study because he's got a lot of different problems. But the main problem that he has here in 1 Samuel chapter 2 is he has a couple of sons who are involved in all kinds of wicked practices while they are serving in the tabernacle. Many of those practices that they are doing mirror very much what goes on amongst the pagans in the idol temples and amongst people who who worship false gods. Which means that as they bring those things into the tabernacle of God, they are corrupting the worship of Almighty God. And so Eli learns of all of this. And he says this in 1 Samuel chapter 2, look in verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel, and how they laid with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. This is, I believe, one of the most common mistakes in Eli's case in parenting. And it is a very common mistake that we make in marriage. What Eli does is he makes the mistake of asking the question, why? When what he needed to do was he needed to do right. And he needed to encourage his sons to do right. In fact, I think in some ways Eli would fit quite well here in 21st century America. Because we have become very, very adept today at asking the why question when people do certain things and then we want to analyze it from every possible angle and try to figure out all the motivations and all the subconscious meaning of all of that. We have talk shows on radio and television and on the internet. We have sociologists and psychologists who make a living at figuring out people's motivations. Why did they do that? What was going on in their mind when they did that thing right there? And that happens a lot of times in marriage. We start asking, why? Why? Why do you do me that way? What were you thinking when you did that? Oh, I tell you, I know why you did that. You did that because that's the way your mother acts. We just decide that we're all just amateur mental health specialists and we're ready to just immediately start uncovering everybody's subconscious hidden motivations. Listen to me very carefully. In Eli's situation here in 1 Samuel 2, why his boys participated in those evil practices, that wasn't what was most important. Eli, you don't need to sit around and ask and speculate and pontificate about what was the reason why they did these bad things. That's not what's important here. What's important right here, right now, is doing. We need to do something. We need to do right. Eli should have said, boys, what you're doing is wrong and it has to stop and it has to stop right now. We don't need to dialogue about it. I don't need to hear all of your motivations and all of your explanations and all of your rationalizations about it. No, we're going to start doing right. In our marriages, it's exactly what we need as well. We need to have a bias for action. Focus on doing the right things. We don't need a bunch of psychoanalysis about why things are the way that they are. We don't need all kinds of psychobabble to try and explain, maybe even explain away the problem. No. What we need is we need two people who are going to start doing right. If somebody says, and I've heard men say this before, if somebody says, well, you know what, I don't love my wife anymore. What's the answer to that? 
The answer to that is repent and start loving your wife. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wife. That's, that's doing right. I've heard women say, I can't submit to him. I'm not going to submit to him again. What's the answer to that problem? You need to repent. You need to start doing right. Ephesians 5.22 says wives are to submit to their husbands. This is really, this is really very simple. It's very, very simple counsel that I am offering here. And I will tell you, I believe it is extremely powerful. I'll tell you this, I don't think you can beat someone who comes along and says, you know what, I was doing wrong, and I quit doing wrong, and I started doing right, and I started doing right because that's what God said to do. Doing right, that is incredibly forceful and powerful. Because what it does is it puts the onus, it puts the onus on me. Whatever is going on, no matter the layers of complexity to the problem, whatever's happening, I, I can always choose to do the right thing. Isn't that right? Parents, don't we tell our kids that? You can always choose to do the right thing. You don't have to take the lesser of two evils. You don't have to choose what's wrong. You always have the opportunity to do right. I may not be able to control what everybody out there is doing. I may not be able to control what everybody in here is doing or even in my own house is doing. I may not even be able to control what my spouse is doing. But I, I can still choose to do right. Can I give you very quickly three do rights that are so important and so meaningful? Number one, first of all, whenever you're wrong, you need to admit it. You remember King David? Whenever that prophet came to him, and in front of him and in front of the entire court, he said, you are the man. What did David say next? Oh, no, David said, I have sinned. I have sinned. Gentlemen, I'm speaking to myself chiefly here. Admitting that you are wrong, that is not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of humility. It is a sign of honesty. It is a sign of integrity as we own up to our shortcomings. I did it. I blew it. I messed up. I sinned. I'm asking God for forgiveness and I'm asking you, my beloved, I'm asking you for forgiveness. I did what was wrong. Whenever we admit to our wrongs, folks, that's doing right. Secondly, forgive and forgive quickly. When your spouse admits wrong and whenever they penitently ask for your forgiveness, we need to grant that forgiveness and we need to grant it immediately. I cannot hold the past. Continue to hold that over your head. I need to forgive. and I need to let that go. When I forgive, that means that I'm not going to keep harping on it for the next 15, 20 minutes, hour, or the next several hours. It means that I'm not going to put that in the closet. But then whenever I feel like kind of getting some digs in, I'm going to go pull that back out of the closet. Five, ten years down the road, and I'm going to start clubbing you over the head with it. That's not forgiveness. I need to, really what forgiveness is, I need to release the debt. I need to forgive you in the same way that Jesus has forgiven me completely and entirely. When I forgive my spouse, folks, that's doing right. And then thirdly, let me give you a do right here that everybody ought to be able to do it and you ought to be able to start doing it right now. Thirdly, be thankful for your spouse. There are a lot of people in this world who would like to be married. A lot of women who would like to have a husband. A lot of men who would like to have a wife. 
There are people who struggle regularly with the struggles of the single life. And there are others as well who know the pain of loneliness. I should even say as well, we have folks, even amongst our own number, who are widows, who lost their spouse some time back. And they very, very much, they miss them. Can I ask you, do we need to spend, I don't know, 24 hours in their shoes to appreciate what it is that we do have? To be reminded of how richly blessed we are to have a husband or to have a wife? What we need to do is we need to be ready to identify something specific and particular to be thankful for in our spouse and then we need to drop to our knees. We need to thank and praise God for that. Dear Lord, thank You for my husband. He is a strong provider. He is a good spiritual leader to our family. I am thankful for his leadership, Lord. Dear Lord, thank You for my wife. She has such a kind and considerate heart for others. She is such a loving mother to our children. Lord, thank You for my godly wife. When we hold our mates up in prayer before the Lord, you know what that does? Not only are we thanking God, but we are reminding ourselves of what is truly beautiful, what is truly special, And we are putting our love for each other, we are putting that ahead even of our petty differences. Doing what's right, whether in a spat, whether in a long-term issue, I believe that's the groundbreaker. That's the game changer. that helps us to solve problems in marriage. Now we started this evening by imagining the conversation that must have occurred between Abraham and Sarah in Genesis chapter 12. And maybe it is an exaggeration on my part to say that Sarah maybe got upset about the idea of packing up and moving off to this new strange land. I don't know that for sure. Maybe maybe Sarah despised Haran. And so maybe she was doing cartwheels when Abraham said, Hey, we're moving, honey. I don't know for sure what her reaction was on that day. Do you know what? Even if no conflict was generated on that specific day in Genesis chapter 12, I am confident that there would have been other occasions in the life and in the marriage of Abraham and Sarah where they did run into some problems. Not a question of if, just a matter of when. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham's already 75, which meant that Sarah was about 65. So probably up to that point, they probably had already experienced Pretty much a lifetime of problems and conflicts that come along in marriage. But the point is, whatever they were, whatever problems they had, however many problems they had, they worked through them. And if Abraham and Sarah, if they can work through their marriage problems, if they can love each other and if they could love the Lord, then what can you and I not do? If we will love the Lord and put His ways above all others, if we will start right with the commitment to be joined together for life, if we will think right, think right of our spouse, and think right of ourselves in order to avoid contempt, and if we will then do right, take action, then I believe we can solve just about any marriage problem we can find that little bit of oasis of joy and delight that God provides in a good and godly marriage.
In just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing the song of encouragement and we're going to invite anyone who needs to respond to the call of the gospel to do just that. Cody, in his prayer earlier, he prayed that the Lord would bless me as I speak and preach the gospel, that someone would hear this message this evening and want to become obedient to it. Well, this is not a lesson about how to become a Christian. But I would say this. See that last one right there? About doing right? That is what the invitation of the Lord is about. As far as your part in all of this, it's about you taking action. It's about you taking decisive action and start doing what the Lord has said. That is right. And if you have never become a child of God, through obedience to Him, confessing Jesus as God's Son, repenting and turning from sin and turning to God, being buried with Christ in the waters of baptism, then this is your opportunity to start doing right. You are a child of God, but you have left the safety of His fold. You maybe went off into that far country of sin that we talked about this morning. And doing right for you, brother or sister, means repenting, confessing those faults before the Lord. If you need to confess them before your brothers and sisters, ask us for your prayers, for prayers and encouragement, and we stand ready to help you as well. Let's all make the decision, I'm going to start doing right. I'm going to start doing right right now. Let's do it while we stand and while we sing.